Amen. So uh, today we're going to be talking about something that I think for many of us is kind of like a skeleton in God's closet. You know, I don't know if you're part of a family that's super dysfunctional. Uh, Maybe, I don't know which family that is that's not dysfunctional. But uh, I believe, at least in my families, my extended families, there's all these sort of black box things that are hidden away somewhere that no one really wants to talk about. There's all these spots where you say, I don't really want to talk about what that great, great uncle actually did. Like, we just, that's just something we don't say. That's just something we don't refer to. And I think that for many of us, there's characteristics or there's attributes about God that fit into that. Uh, There are things that that we would rather not, uh, you know, talk about. There's uh, issues like, ah, does God really love all the people? Or we think that maybe there's something about God. He really loves war or he's really dark or he's really angry. And we say, let's just not talk about those aspects of God because we're, we're afraid, right? like a family, and a church could be that way. I think one of those things is what we're talking about today, because for the last few weeks, we've kind of hinted at this thing. Trip first talked about how God works all things together for the good of those who love him, which sort of begs this question, what is he doing for the people that he doesn't love and that don't love him, right? That's it. We're like, ah, oh, let's just not think about that, right? Or like I talked about last week, that God has, like we can be so confident that God has secured us so deeply in his thought, in his work, in his movement, that there's nothing that can separate us from God. But it kind of begs that question of, well, what about those other people? Like, do they, does God not love them? Does God separate himself from them? And so we're going to be talking about those things because I think it brings up big questions about God's character. It brings up big questions about what he's doing, how he calls people to himself, how he calls people to his mercy, to his grace, all of that. Uh, You can talk uh, really big terms if you want to. Uh, Predestination, you know, this, this idea that people are destined before birth for either grace or mercy or for wrath or election, that God's calling people and choosing people to receive him, to receive compassion, mercy, all of that. That's big, a uh, big idea about God's sovereignty, that he's in control of all things. And I think that what we could say is that's not fair. How does God choose? How do we know? How does he know what he's going to do? And maybe I'm the only one that has that question, but I doubt it. Uh, And so today we're going to cover all of Romans chapter 9, not because we want to rush past it like, oh man, that's really weird passage, let's go really fast, but because it's one consistent argument and thought. It's all built up together. If you splice it up and you cut it into little bits, uh, it becomes really confusing. Also, if you cut it up into little bits, it really becomes redundant. It's because it's one really thought. So buckle up, get ready to listen to a lot of Bible in just a second. Also, Paul Paul refers to a ton of Old Testament passages and stories. And the way that he worked is he would quote just a little tiny piece of something, but he'd want us to know the whole context of it, want us to know the whole story that he's referring to. Because back in the day, like 2,000 years ago, people used to know all of the, the Bible, all of the stories. And so one quote would just be like someone saying, hey, remember that time LeBron, you know, Uh, block that one shot is way better than Giannis's shot. It's like everyone could know, oh, I remember that whole game. And that's what 
what uh, Paul is doing when he's calling back these different parts. It's a lot for us to keep up with because we were not raised in an ancient Jewish society. Uh, yeah, no one here was raised in an ancient Jewish society. So I've actually put up a bunch of notes for you to follow along. Uh, you can go online uh, and you can study. I'm just gonna warn you, it's like 18 pages of notes. Uh, you can download it. There's also other resources and articles. I just hope that there's maybe some sort of curiosity that you have today. Maybe you'll dive in more to it. You can ask me about those things because my notes are not really 15 pages long. So uh, without further ado, I think that uh, this is gonna be awesome as we talk about this. Uh, I think we're gonna gain a huge view of God. We're gonna gain this view of God that isn't, oh my gosh, there's something in the closet that we need to bring out, but what we'll find instead is there's an amazing treasure. Like, why don't we have this out in our living room all the time? Why don't we put this painting up above our mantle so that we can see it and look at it and rest in it all the time? I think that's what's going to happen. And so let's, let's start and let's read Romans chapter nine. Paul says this, he says, I speak the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For if I, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, those of my people, those of uh, the people of Israel, because theirs is the adoption to the sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises. Theirs is the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Uh, just to kind of pause there, Paul starts this whole passage by expressing a deep sorrow and personal anguish for his people to know the living God and to rest in his sovereign grace and mercy and to have knowledge of him. Uh, he's talking about how this, his people, his, his genetic people, his background, his family, his tribe, people who have neglected him, people who have abused him, but he still has this deep heart for, for them to know God. And, and, and he's gonna talk really deeply some really rational arguments after this, but first he lets us know that these are not just intellectual issues but they're deeply emotional issues because we have a burden for the people around us that we love. Uh, and I pray that we might actually know that kind of anguish, that kind of personal fraughtness and agony of, I really long for my brothers, my sisters, my parents to know God and to experience that. You pray for your neighbors who have the experience or have been told or see the grace of God through your own life and you say, I want them to know God also. That we would you know, kind of engage this passage that way. Uh, I think some of us might come to this and say, just with a rational brain, uh, and say, we just leave, leave the heart emotion stuff out of it. Like this is just, God just does what God does. Get over it. Uh, but Paul doesn't do that. He's, he brings his heart into it as well. Some of us might come to this passage and the rest of it with just our heart, but I challenge us that we'd bring our brains into it as well. Uh, and that God would make us a people and a church that actually has a kind of anguish where we say, I almost wish my neighbor next door could, could know Jesus and we could trade places because it's such a gift and I love them so deeply. So let's keep going. In verse six it says, it is not as though God's word had failed 
For not all who descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are all Abraham's children. Are they all Abraham's children? On the contrary, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it's the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make it this way, make me this way? Does not the potter have the right to make out the same lump of clay, some pottery for special purpose and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath, and make his power known, before with great, bore with great patience the objections of his wrath, prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as a way of righteousness have not obtained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. This is God's word. In the very beginning, we might ask this question, does God change his mind uh, and abandon his people? Uh, just to put it very bluntly, uh, everyone reading this at the time 
knew many, many people who were descendants from Abraham who did not believe in Jesus, who did not follow Jesus. In fact, Jesus, one of the big point or moments of his life was walking into Jerusalem and he was up over this hill and he could oversee the city and he had all these people who were following him. All these people were committed to him, that left everything, who had abandoned their parents, who had abandoned their, their, uh, their lands and their families and all those things and came and just followed Jesus. And yet Jesus stands on this hill and he looks over the city and he weeps for them because they are like sheep without a shepherd. And he groans at the rejection that they have for him. And so just put kind of bluntly, everyone reading this would know, wait, aren't there a bunch of people who are genetically, biologically descendants of Abraham who don't get in on all of the promises? And so the question really happens, uh, comes up, what is God doing? Did all of the people that had the covenants and the worship who have all the ancestry, did God just abandon them, forget about them? Did he say, hey, I've got a new, better team now? All of the, the non-Jews, they're the ones who really get to receive it now. Does all of this mean that God's promise and his power and his mercy failed, Paul asked? Did his word fail? And, I, and we might think, man, that's just an old, old school issue. Like, that's like 1,900 years old. That has nothing to do with us. But think about it. If that's true, if God abandons his people, then we can lose it. You know, like a happy thought, like in Peter Pan world, where if we lose our happy thought, we can't fly anymore. Maybe, maybe God will abandon us if we falter in his mission. If we're not obedient enough, maybe God would leave us too. Or if we stop moving forward, somehow we're going to be left behind. Or this thought of we could doubt our way out of God's mercy and God's mission. So the question is actually really important for us. And at the time, there was this really common thought. Uh, it, go, it went back hundreds of years. That if you were just genetically part of Abraham's family, you were all good. Uh, as long as you had his blood, you were a person of promise. Uh, it'd be genetic grace, essentially. As long as you had the right genes, you were part of God's plan. You were blessed, and you were going to bless other people. But Abraham, or Paul says really here, clearly here that it, this is not some sort of random DNA thing, that the promises of God cannot be constrained just to this bloodline thing. Uh, and it's never been the case. And can you imagine if it could, if it did, if that was the case, that there's, you know, at the gates to the kingdom of God, there's someone who, they're not doing a COVID test, but they're doing a DNA test. Like, oh, yep, you've got one eighty hundred thousandth percent of Abraham's blood in it. You're good. You get to come into the kingdom of God. In fact, you can even see that it's, it's how so much racism finds its root and its place and its belief that there's some sort of salvation and honor and glory in our blood. But it's not our blood, Paul says. But it's only the blood of Jesus that anyone gets any mercy or anyone gets any grace. And so it's emphatic here. Paul is so clear. God didn't abandon his promise with an ethnic, genetic Israel because his promises cannot be contained in some DNA code. And he brings up this, this sort of reality that they would have all known, that Abraham had two sons. He had Ishmael and he had Isaac. Both were born of Abraham, yet Ishmael did not receive the promise, but Isaac did. Point blank, the end. Both had his DNA, and yet one was a child of promise and one was not. 
Also, he quotes later on Isaiah and Hosea, who essentially says, my people who are not my people will be part of my people. The people who I do not know now will one day be the people that I do know. The people who have no God one day will stand and they will know me as their God. And so it's both ways. There are people who are genetically part of Abraham's family who do not get grace just barely on, merely on the fact of their blood, but then there's also people who've never been part of Abraham's family who will somehow be brought in and participate in God's family. This is really good news. It also means that God does not abandon his people. The next question we might say is, well, maybe God chooses us based on uh, sort of some sort of foreknowledge of what we will be. You know, like knowing that we're going to be good, knowing that we're going to obey, knowing that we're going to be the right kind of people. So, so God in eternity past says, yep, I want Brad because he's going to be so good. Right? That's, I mean, man, in college I'd smoke my pipe and that's what I believed. But then Paul refers to this other sibling situation where Rebecca has, who's Isaac's wife, has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Uh, Jacob is born second. And he is a child of promise. Esau's born first. He doesn't get the promise. Esau's actually the strong, more, more uh, well-built, more in, intuitive, more uh, problem-solving kind of guy. Jacob is not. And yet, Jacob receives the full blessing before they did anything, this says. And that's also what it says in Genesis 2. Before they were even born, the blessing was already handed out. It's pretty interesting, right? Before they did anything at all. And you might think, well, maybe Jacob ended up being pretty good. Not, not really. His name actually means, you know, the deceiver. And he spent his whole life deceiving people. Like he couldn't stop cheating his brother. If you want to read the whole story and cheating other people, that's just how he lived and operated. In fact, his name gets changed to Israel, which Israel, we think that's a, I don't know if you ever think about what that name means, but it just means the one who contends or fights with God and the one that God fights with. That's what Israel means. And that was his whole life. Esau, though, you were like, oh, maybe it's not fair. Esau was no, like, good guy either. His name really means the, de uh, the despiser. Everything that he got and he received in life, every blessing, every good thing, he hated it, he critiqued others, that's how he lived his life. Did uh, Jacob deserve to be blessed? No. Did, could God have said, oh, Jacob's going to be really good? No, because he was never really good. Like, honestly, read the whole story. It's in the 15 pages of notes. No, he was never good. He'd never deserved mercy. Jacob didn't get, got what he didn't deserve, and Esau really got what he did deserve. All mercy and compassion from God is not based on our genes or how good we're going to be or how good we might be. It's not from our own desire or our will or from our effort. It's just simply God's promise and he doesn't negate it, and he never has. God's grace isn't beholden to those things, or it wouldn't be grace. His mercy isn't conditional on our good behavior, or it wouldn't be mercy. What good person who's been charged of no crime needs mercy? The only one who needs mercy is the one who has done things that's deserving of wrath. God's saving isn't conditional on our safety. If it wasn't for that, 
then we wouldn't need saving. No one can earn or needs to earn God's mercy. It's God's character to give it. How amazing is that for you? And I recognize that I'm not talking a lot about this one verse, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. I'm going to try to say this in a few minutes, but there's literally five pages in the notes on this. Uh, He's, he's quoting Malachi, who's this prophet who comes thousands of years after Jacob and Esau had died. And what the prophets do is they often use just poetic language to describe nations based on who was the first person of that nation. Jacob became Israel. Esau became Edom. And through the story, Edom kept doing battle and attacking Israel, even as they came out of slavery. And God said, Jacob, I've chosen. Israel, I have chosen. And so I will protect them against anyone. If you remember last week's passage, nothing can separate us from God's love. No power, present, past, future, nothing can. And so when when Paul calls that up, he's reminding us, God will protect us. Your inheritance is so secure. He doesn't care who comes against it. He's going to protect you. And also you might ask, does God hate people? And this word is the same word that Jesus uses when he says, if anyone wants to follow me, they have to hate their father and their mother. What what the word really means, compared to your devotion and your prioritization of me, these other people are not considered at all because of the deep commitment that I already have to these people. And so what, what God is saying and what uh, this passage is saying is that God so loves Jacob that he hates and he neglects Edom or this nation that rose up. Then we might think that's all really good, right? That, I mean, that fills me with some warms and fuzzies because I feel like God's blessed me, right? I, I know God. But then we might think, is God's choosing just completely arbitrary? Like even at the time, Paul anticipates some questions, says, what shall we say? Is God unjust? Is God really unfair? Is it just some sort of cosmic, just shuffling of the deck? That God, it doesn't matter what we've done or how good we are or whatever, but God's just pulling a few cards out like it's a magic trick on the side of the road or in the Santa Monica Pier. Like he's just pulling some random cards and those are the ones that get saved and the other people don't. Is it completely just God uh, taking some guesses and some stabs at things? Is it all arbitrary? He quotes this passage from Moses' life. When God reveals himself, Moses says, I don't want to go anywhere else unless, God, you come with me. And God says, okay, I'll go with you. And then Moses ups the ante and says, well, then I want you to reveal yourself to me. And in the revealing of himself to me, uh, to, of <laughs> the revealing of God to Moses, God comes and he says these words, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And this whole phrase and this revealing moment of God to Moses, really for the ancient Jewish people, encompassed just and brought to mind all of the revelation of God to this man and to these people who were rescued out of slavery. And so it was really deeply this concept of God in all of his ways, all of his power, all of his sovereignty, all of his grace. It can really be summed up in the name that God gives Moses when he says, I am who I am. I am Yahweh. And what we learn from Moses in his whole life is that Yahweh is the one who's 100% self-sufficient. 
He relies on no one. He needs no one. He rules and reigns over everyone. Yahweh is the one that everything and everyone belongs to. Yahweh is sovereign. This is this big theological term, the sovereignty of God. Uh, And what is that? It means that God's sovereignty, it extends over all creation. That the formation of creatures and kelp in the depths of the sea, the, the cycles of waves that are still such a mystery to us, that the rising of mountains, the shifting of continents, Uh, the the rotation of the earth on its axis, the spinning of galaxies billions of miles away. There isn't a creature, there isn't a molecule, there isn't an element or an atom in all of creation in which God does not rule and reign. That's what it means when say God is sovereign over all creation. God's sovereignty also extends over all history working towards the reversal of the curse, that all human history, all empires, all governments, all people groups, all the moving around of people on a map, all of that, God has been at work and is in control of it. That nothing is happening without him. God's sovereignty gets expressed through his word, that everything that God says, everything that he reveals about himself does not uh, result in some weird miscommunication. It doesn't result in some, ah, I don't really quite get that. God always communicates and reveals himself in a way that he gets what he intends. God's sovereignty also has a purpose. He reveals himself and he makes things new. What what God is doing with this incredible control and power, being the self-sufficient one, is he's making himself known to all people and all creatures. This is what he he does. He's making, not just making himself known, but he's also making every broken thing, every cracked thing, every evil thing, good and beautiful and wonderful. And why does he do all of this? The scriptures say, for his name's sake, meaning that he wants to extend the knowledge of who he is, this name Yahweh, the presence and the reality and the character of God. He wants to extend that further and further from his people, that every single person on this side of history or the next would know the living God and would know him. That's his whole purpose and sovereignty, and that's what this means. Is God being, is God arbitrary? Is God just, is it just random? No, God is sovereignly ruling over all of these things. And then we might say, well, maybe God chooses people to be against him, right? Like maybe he chooses people that he just doesn't like. Like Pharaoh, uh, this, he pa- calls to mind Pharaoh, who was this massively important, I mean, he was like God uh, in, the, in the ancient world. There was nothing outside of his power or his control. He was the person. His people worshiped him as a God. And the story of Pharaoh is a tragic one, right? Moses comes and he says, let my people go. And then Pharaoh says, no. And then Pharaoh ends up not only losing his son's life, but he ends up losing his life, his kingdom, his, all of his chariots, all of the power, right? And when the sea comes crashing down on him, that's the end of Pharaoh. And, and what's telling about that story that keeps happening uh, in Exodus, if you read it, is that there's this cycle and this process that occurs in which God says, I am hardening Pharaoh's heart. I'm making him resistant, more and more resistant to me. 
I think there's uh, a lot of truth to be found in that process, though. How does God harden Pharaoh's heart? Uh, he hardens his heart through a constant exposure to grace. Because this is the, it was a weeks-long journey, multiple weeks sort of bound together, and it happened through a cycle that, you know, every week the same thing would happen. Moses would come to Pharaoh, and he would reveal who God was so that Pharaoh knew exactly the character of God, the name of God, the power of God. Pharaoh knew through these conversations with Moses what God cared about. And then through Moses, God would call Pharaoh to obey. He would sort of contend and, and, and Moses would say, God wants you to do this, to relent your own self-sufficient powers, Pharaoh, and do what God says. And then through Moses, God would do miracles and show the power of God to Moses, like right in front of his face. No way for Pharaoh to get out of it or see anything else. And then Pharaoh would say, no. He would say, no, I don't want that. I, I refuse to acknowledge this God, to submit to this God, to yield any power to this God. And then what would happen is then Moses would come again and do the exact same cycle all over again. This happened week after week, day after day. And through this process, Pharaoh dug his heels in deeper and deeper and deeper. Through this process, everyone in the whole country knew who God was. Everyone understood the character of God. The people God was saving understood who God was and what he cared about. But God hardened Pharaoh's heart through this cycle of grace. Not by some sort of secret working or some uh, smoky back room, but through this very public and relentless expression of God's grace to this man. Pharaoh, maybe more than any person in history, got an encounter with God in such a way that he, he just consistently resisted. But while his circumstances were pretty unique, I think we've all experienced the power of that. Of someone, I think even in our own moment in history, uh, we get so entrenched in what we think and what power we won't give to someone else that as time goes by, we get harder and harder and harder to any truth or grace. And that's what happens with Pharaoh. And God does it through grace. And I think now we begin to understand some of Paul's anguish or Jesus' weeping as they look at people who've been told, who've been shown God's grace and yet refuse it. So then we might finally ask, well, maybe God chooses people to suffer. Is that what's happening? You know, why are we still to blame? Paul asks. Who can resist what God does and what he wants? Is it really my fault? Why would I, you know, why should I be punished if God is doing all of this? And then Paul quotes Isaiah again. He says, who can talk back to this God? In other words, calling to mind his sovereignty. Who are you as a person who's not even control of any part of your life? Who are you to critique the living God who holds galaxies in their place? This is what we know through all of this. Who gets mercy? The people who don't deserve it. Who gets hardened? 
those who do deserve it. What we also know is this, is that God has been relentlessly patient in withholding wrath while simultaneously being eager to extend grace. Then there's this really important question that I think nobody asks. Why was I chosen? I think sometimes we're like, I was awesome. Frozen chosen. Uh, rock on, you know. Why? Why? For what purpose? He tells a story or calls to mind Jeremiah and the potter and the clay. In Jeremiah 18, God tells this prophet to go and watch a potter do his job. And he goes and he sees this potter who, who says to himself, I'm going to make a bowl. And then he puts his hand to the clay and he makes a bowl. He says, I'm going to make a vase. And then he makes a vase. But as, as the prophet Jeremiah watches this potter, sometimes the potter becomes frustrated with the lump of, coal, of clay and will break it down and then start again saying, I'm now going to make something special with this thing. Uh, what happens in the context of that is, is uh, God goes on to tell Jeremiah, it's like, look, if the people of Israel repent and believe in me and follow me, I will make something special and beautiful out of them. One of the big takeaways from that passage and even from this callback is that God is always making something incredibly beautiful and valuable and useful out of broken things that we think should be discarded. But so much more than that, what he's saying is that, there, that God puts his hands to the clay to create objects for a special purpose. Where God's sovereignty intersects our lives is where God's mission begins to consume our lives. Because if you think back through the whole of this sto the story, even all of the examples that I brought up, in each of them, the promise and the blessing and all of that good stuff was not just, hey, I'm choosing a few people to have a good life. It was God saying, I'm choosing these people to show the world what I am like. I'm choosing these people to bless all people, all tribes, all countries, all nations, every single person. I'm choosing them so that people might know. Uh, Yahweh, it's... Uh, entrusts his uniqueness, his universality, his character. He trusts that to his witnesses to make him known. The primary responsibility of a witness is to say and to tell what we know, to say what we've seen, to show the mercy and the grace that's been given to us. Listen, you could feel super special being called out by God, by being chosen, but you aren't chosen for you like a cul-de-sac. You're being chosen to bless the entire world through your obedience. You're chosen to make the love of God known to all nations. You're chosen for a purpose, that his name might be made great to the very ends of the world. You've been given the blessing and the burden of sacrificing all things to make the greatest thing known to every woman, to every man, to every child. As Tripp will say next week, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now, all of that could be super confusing, right? But uh, I have this analogy that's from City Seminary that people don't like, but I'm going to tell it anyway because I love it, and I'm in charge here. Uh, under God, I get to do whatever I want with these 30 minutes. Uh, so suppose... I throw a play date party at my house and I have a bunch of kids in the backyard and 
I make some really good chocolate chip cookies, like really good. And I make them for every kid in the backyard. And when they're done, I go out to the patio and I yell out to the kids, I've got some fresh, warm, chocolatey goodness of a cookie for each of you. Come and get it. There's enough. But then the kids, they're so deeply involved in their games and their conversations and their playing dirt uh, so much that they don't even move. And so I come out and I call again. No, seriously, really good, warm chocolate chip cookies. They're, they're amazing. You should come and have them. But again, no one moves. But I really want them to have the cookies because I did all the work, right? And so I go out and I walk outside and I go downstairs and I come up to a kid, let's say Truman, and I grab him gently by the shoulder and I take the cookie and I put it up close to his nose. He smells the cookie. I put it right up to his lips. He can almost begin to taste it. I gently put my finger on his chin and I open it up and I put the cookie in his mouth. And he begins to chew it. And then he begins to say, oh my gosh, dad, you made some really good cookies. And then I tell him, I say, all right, someone has finally tasted these cookies. And I tell Truman, it's your job to go tell everyone else. Go tell everyone else about these cookies. And so Truman begins to do that. He goes and he tells everyone, hey, dad made really great cookies. There's plenty for everyone. You should try them. They're still warm. I've tasted, I've seen, they're incredible. You should really try one. And so kids start streaming to the plate of cookies. And joy and sweetness and chocolatiness begins to fill their hearts. And Truman gets to participate in bringing people to the plate of cookies. But then Truman and I both uh, realize that there's a few kids who still haven't come to get the cookies. And so we go to them and we show them the cookies. We describe the cookies. One girl says, I'm too busy building this thing out of dirt. Another boy says, no, my mom makes better cookies. And Truman says, no, they're really, they're really good. And this boy says, no, my mom makes better cookies. And then we go to another child. And this child says, how can I know that that cookie's good for me? Probably, you know, raised by someone who's really health conscious and, you know, understands all of those things. So this child's like, I don't know if that cookie's good for me. And Truman says, it is, I know. And the girl says, how can I be sure that this cookie's really good for me? And Truman says, I don't know. I just, I just know that it is, because I've had one. And eventually, uh, this child gets so mad at Truman's constant appeals and constant waving of the cookies that he pushes Truman away to get him out of this way, or her way. I got confused. And then I decide, as the maker of the cookies, that I will not force these kids to eat any of the cookies. And at the end of the play date, all the kids are leaving, and the few that rejected the cookies finally see the empty plate of cookies, and they also see the crumbs and the chocolate on the faces of those that they were playing with. Did any of the cookies or kids deserve a cookie? No, right? None of the kids deserved a cookie. Uh, was Truman special? Yeah, he was special. Was he a favorite? No, I wanted everyone to have a cookie, right? 
and I did all of the work that they would have a cookie. Uh, he was just used for the special privilege of telling people about the cookie, right? Did the kids uh, who ate the cookie after Truman told them about it, did they earn the cookie? Did they make the cookie? No. They didn't make the cookie. They didn't earn the cookie. I decided, like, at the store to buy all of the ingredients. I decided to make the cookies long before they even showed up at my house that I was going to have enough cookies and give cookies to all the kids, right? So they didn't do anything to earn the cookie just because Truman told them about it and just because they came afterwards. Did all the kids get a cookie? No. Did I withhold a cookie from any of the kids? No. Why did those kids reject the cookie? For the same reason everyone else did, I just didn't force those to eat it. God in his mercy to all people chose Abraham and Sarah to be his chosen people, to make the goodness of God known to all people. That through their life and through their descendants, that humanity would be able to see and know the living God. This is what God has done throughout all of history. Jesus chose 12 people to follow him that they might lead many other people to know. This is what Jesus did in choosing Paul. Paul absolutely was forced to eat the cookie. Just read that story. There was no way out for him. He had to. Why? It even says in the story of Paul, for the special purpose of making God known, the good news of Jesus, to people outside of his family. God operates within his sovereignty with an intense patience and grace. Why? To make the riches of his glory known to us and to the ends of the world. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a non-Jew. It doesn't matter what your pedigree is or how good of a family you came from. It doesn't matter how great you are at maximizing your life. It doesn't matter uh, how faithful or eloquent or gifted you are. God is telling a story and unraveling all human history to maximize for all creatures the glory of God. All human history is passing as by as God says, this is my goodness to you. This is my mercy. This is my compassion to you. Lastly, it is radically unfair. It isn't arbitrary. It isn't cruel. God isn't unjust. But truly, the whole situation is unfair. We did nothing, and yet we receive everything. Jesus did nothing wrong, yet he received every burden just so that we could rest in a grace that we do not deserve, just so that we could stand under the love of God forever that we have in no way shown any desire for. It's incredibly unfair. And then Jesus weeps over all of those who have rejected his free gift. It's incredibly unfair. God has injected himself into our stories while we still wanted nothing to do with him so that we might participate in leaving a mark on human history that knows the living, true God. 
that he might make his appeal to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to our friends, that he might make his appeal through us. God uses his sovereignty to never give up on you or your role in his mission. It's unfair, but I take it every day of the week. Let's pray.